you stand with me for the reading of the gospel? This is the gospel of the Lord according to St. Matthew. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. It'll come as no surprise to those of you who know me well and have been walking with us for a while here at Via Langley that when the lectionary passage is Matthew 9, starting verse 9, uh, we're going to go there. This is probably my favorite story in the whole of the Gospels uh, and the whole of Christ's life with us. It has ministered to my heart and to my own journey over and over and over again. And I continue, I feel, to learn from what happens in this short account. This is a profound moment in the Gospels. What I want us to do this morning is to particularly consider what's happening in the lives of the Pharisees in this story. Um, we've looked at this story from different angles. We've spent lots of time in it. But this morning, I want us to particularly pay attention to what's going on in the, the journey, so to speak, that happens for these Pharisees in this story. Because I think there's some things for us to catch and learn today where our hearts, of course we don't want to admit it, but are a bit pharisaical or have at least that temptation or that pull. I think sometimes we're way too hard on the Pharisees. Uh, Not because they don't get it. Jesus was pretty hard on them too. But because we're more like them than we'd like to admit. We think they are so different from us. Uh, But I don't know that they are. And this morning, I, I pray that the Lord would humble us enough to catch what it was that Jesus was hoping the Pharisees would catch at Matthew's house when they had when they saw him at dinner. These were religious men, these Pharisees. Uh, That's putting it mildly. They were steeped in a system of life and belief and faith um, intended to produce and sustain righteousness. So in their minds and in their intention, they, they were steeped in a system that wasn't just ridiculous in their minds. In their hearts and in their minds, they truly wanted to be righteous. They truly wanted to appear righteous. And they wanted to not only become righteous, but to stay righteous and to continue to be righteous. And in a way, as leaders thought that was their role or their job, was to help everyone around them pull that off too. And this system that they they were steeped in pulled them into this idea of righteousness that unfortunately didn't work all that well. It became incredibly... uh, difficult they were when i say steeped in they were like the tea bag that got forgotten about and you go to take that drink and realize oh man a good thing has been completely ruined 
Romans chapter 4, the passage that Beth read for us today, is an incredible example of what happens when a Pharisee catches the good news of Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was one who was the best of the best. He was on a fast track to leading in that world. He knew this system and had been steeped in it himself. But when he met Jesus, he encountered a different idea. He encountered something more life-giving. And so all of a sudden we have passages, men who used to think this way, beginning instead to articulate the gospel in a very different way. And the way that Paul does it, of course, in the Romans passage, we won't spend a ton of time there, but it was Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Paul begins to share an example of what faith is supposed to look like when it's lived out. How faith actually works. How we actually come into righteousness, live in it, and sustain it by coming right back to the father Abraham. So Paul is speaking, of course, in the book of Romans to Jewish people. He's saying to them, listen, you need to understand we all have the same father, but let's look for a moment at his life and recognize that the promise that was given to Abraham, and and that moment became the promise to all of us, Right? The promise that we would be his people, that we, would, that we would be righteous in that sense, that we would be brought into a right relationship with God to live out of that. That promise was for Abraham dependent upon faith and rested upon grace. It was not dependent or resting upon this system that you were so steeped in. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees then, jumps in, and I absolutely love the simplicity, but the profound nature of what he says to them. Friends, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I want you to consider this. And he goes back to the Hosea passage that Doug read. And he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I want you to consider this prophecy, this this lesson from from the Scriptures that has shaped and formed our lives, should shape and form our faith. Consider, what does it mean when God says to His people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? This is uh, something that can be kind of missed for us as Western readers. Um, when, when, When He brings this forward and He says this to them, these men who are not far removed from the sacrificial system and, and who are steeped in a system that is marked by this. And he says to them, let us consider our own scriptures. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to think about that for a minute. Well, it's interesting for us to stop then and say, why is Jesus throwing this at them, calling them to consider that in light of what's just happened? So let's go back in the story for a minute. What's just happened? Jesus is reclined at table with sinners. Jesus is in intimate company and fellowship with some surly dudes, with a motley crew, with a, with a group of people who have so far missed the mark that it seems acceptable for the culture around them to literally define them by it. And they're called in the Scriptures sinners why does your 
Rabbi, why does your master eat with sinners? Right? And out of their hearts comes a bit of a telling of how their faith works. How they see God and men. And how this relationship, this interaction works. They are beginning to read it onto this situation. And so the situation is making absolutely no sense to them. Why is he eating with such broken, messed up individuals? Jesus steps in and says, I want you to think about something. What did it mean in Hosea when it said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? He says that to them, puts that scripture in, right into the moment where they are struggling to understand why Christ would be so near to such broken people. I'm in a course right now on Anglican theology that I am absolutely loving. And so over the weeks, you get, you're going to get some of what I'm learning. But I spent some time in the, in the writings and the theology of a man named Thomas Kremner, who if you've been around the Anglican world for a while, you know exactly who I'm talking about. But if you're newer to the Anglican way, like a lot of us, you may not know that he was uh, one of the very first bishops under Queen Elizabeth when the Anglican Church kind of took its roots in the Reformation. And he's, he's the man that we can thank for the prayer book. He's the man who began to put a number of things into play. But Kremner spent lots of time with people like Luther with different, in these spaces and learning these things of the Reformation being just captured in very similar ways by the truth of the gospel and coming back to it. The reason why I bring Luther up today is because I've titled my sermon today, A Lively Faith, which is a term that Cramner uses all of the time. That he believed that the people of God, that those who follow Jesus should have what he called a lively faith. And he talked about two kinds of faith. And so I want to show you, use these today to help us maybe understand what's going on here in this encounter with Jesus. So there's, there's two kinds of faith. One of them, Thomas Cramner referred to as dead faith. He said there, there, there's a faith that is dead, and he, he's pulling back from James. Do you remember when James said at one point, faith without works is dead. There's a dead faith. There, there, there's a belief that does not bring life. And he talks about this idea. You can believe in Jesus. You can believe he existed. You could even believe he's right. But if you don't let him be Lord of your life, if you don't bring your life, if you don't believe into Jesus, then there's no life in that. You don't benefit from the belief. Right? It's when we bring our lives in and allow it to shape and transform our lives, when we bring our lives into Jesus, that it becomes a lively faith. But this dead faith, he goes on to explain, and I think it sounds a little something like probably what the Pharisees thought or how they functioned, how they saw things. So a dead faith, at its foundation, at, at, at its root, at its sort of impetus or the inception point of it, is what we would call action. Sometimes we refer to it as works. Good works, right? And the idea being that based on my action, based on what I do and what I bring to the table, I will produce in my life or I will merit righteousness right so as i 
act righteously, I will become righteous. As I commit to this faith in this life, it will produce righteousness in me. What's interesting about this picture is if you go one further, George, sorry it's so small, guys, but there is what this says here is grace and mercy. The question that I started to wrestle with and I thought about this week is I thought in this system of what we would call like works righteousness, right, where my, my faith really is earned or worked into, grace and mercy, where is it? I would say it doesn't exist. I would say that really one of the greatest issues with this is grace and mercy at the very least aren't necessary. Because it's not about grace. I don't need it. I'm earning my righteousness. I'm earning ultimately my salvation. My salvation equals my output. So I don't need grace. I overcame it by my action. Kremner rightly calls this dead faith because it will not lead to life. It won't actually work. Why? Your actions could never sufficiently bring about righteousness. And we get this, right? Most of us get this. Different parts of our lives, and we've tried really hard. And it hasn't worked. And so this idea then stirs something in us. But I think what we need to wrestle with today is the pharisaical nature of our own faith, our own belief, when though we understand this, we've heard it many times, we're still tempted to go here. And we try and work for our our righteousness, to to impress and to convince God that we're worthy. And we end up on this kind of hamster wheel that just spins incessantly, and we call it faith. What Kramer then talks about is a lively faith, which I think Paul talks about. Jesus was modeling and inviting us to, and that's what I want to invite us to today is a lively faith. And let me show you how lively faith, how true and life-giving faith looks. A true and lively faith is not founded upon action, it's founded upon grace. And that grace of Jesus produces or makes way for, allows for faith. That even your faith Your belief in Jesus is the outworking of the grace of God in your life. Do you know that you know anything about God and certainly anything particularly or personally about him because he revealed himself to you? What a grace. He did not have to do that. And if he was like us, he probably wouldn't have. We had given him every reason to give up on us. And the grace of God pursues us, and that pursuit of us, that grace extended to us, begins to produce or make way for, allow for faith. And this grace and faith become the foundation upon which 
righteousness starts to be produced in our life. That out of this place of grace and faith, one of the things that God declares over us is, you are righteous. You are not righteous because you earned it or made it happen. You are declared righteous. And that is an extension, an example of an outworking of grace, not merit. And so true and lively faith is anchored in the grace and mercy of a God who loves you, who went to the cross and took your sin upon himself that you could be set free to a lively faith. To a faith that is full of life and the incredible thing is begins to be a life lived out in a righteous way lived out in relationship, right relationship, with the God who created you. And then, what is important, and what makes it lively in some ways, is that having been declared righteous by the God who created us, we begin then to see action. So good works begin to flow out of the life of the Christian who has encountered Jesus and experienced all the benefits of who he is and what he's done for us. Extended to us fully, unconditionally, with grace. And so action becomes the outflow of our faith, not the foundation upon which it's built. Coming back to Jesus' encouragement to consider Hosea 6.6. Consider this for a moment with us, with the Pharisees, in our own hearts. Sacrifice, when it becomes the inception point of faith, is like the first example. It's the works unto righteousness. But mercy... And grace, when they become the inception point, it is unto something very different. So when Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he's directly speaking into the upside down system that this group of men have been steeped in. An idea that causes them to look at this dinner party and not see what they should have or could have seen. Pharisees are deeply concerned with the unrighteousness of others. They're certainly concerned with their own, but they're also deeply concerned with the unrighteousness of Jesus' company in this story. Why does he eat with such sinners? There's a judgment there, right? There's a, they're, they're, they're looking upon them in utter disdain. And in their minds, part of the reason why they're so concerned with it is, we see from the story, it shows us, they believe that in some way, their unrighteousness disqualifies them from his presence. Why is he eating with such sinners? Right? 
their action does not merit his presence. And so they're offended, and they're confused, and they're thrown off so much so that they can't keep their mouth shut. They've got to intervene in a dinner party they weren't even invited to. Right? They feel like it's their job, in a sense, their responsibility to interject here. Do you not understand the fallout of this? You can't, like, you can't do this. You're upending the entire system in which we're steeped. Friends, when we build our faith on merit, when sacrifice becomes the inception point of our faith, an understanding of salvation without mercy and grace at its foundation, we will be unable to offer anything different to the world around us. If we are steeped in and held in this idea at any level that it is my behavior, my action, that starts faith on its way, that starts righteousness at work in my life, we will require that of everyone around us. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. Part of what bugs them is, do you realize how hard we work to not be sinners? These guys haven't even tried. And you're intimately enjoying dinner with them? It's offending their system of belief. It's, a, it's actually offending the foundation upon which their faith has been built. No wonder they can't keep quiet. But I love how Jesus then takes time to engage them, to speak into their lives into the lives of men who desire to follow God, to be intimate with, to to walk in his ways. Now, the question becomes, is Jesus saying that the quality and nature of a man's life does not matter? That it is insignificant, right? And I think that's what the Pharisees think his actions are communicating. That somehow he's condoning their sin by being with them. Now, is that what Jesus is doing? I would say that the story very clearly shows us that that's absolutely not what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus refers to their sin as a sickness. He actually speaks to the broken parts of these men's lives that have deemed them sinners as those who are ill in need of a doctor, in need of a physician, in need of healing, of change, of transformation. He's in no way trying to say their action doesn't matter, that their way of life is insignificant or irrelevant to the situation or the conversation. He wants for them to live life and life to the full. And he knows that what has deemed them sinners is not equaling that. But in fact, Matthew and his friends are here at this table because something is shifting and changing in them. But it didn't start with action. It started with grace that stirred faith. The kind of grace that allowed a tax collector 
to leave his tax booth and follow this man with his life. Jesus is not saying that our life does not matter. The way we live and the, and the action of our lives, the outflow of our life is insignificant. He's not saying that at all. But what is needed for a sick man to be made well? What is needed for a broken soul, for, for, for a sinner to be made whole? Well, for the Pharisees, they would say, be more, do more, pull your stuff together, get your act together, and then we can talk. Smarten up. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, says something entirely different, and that's what we see in this story. It's a powerful message. Time to put it this way. It communicates that for us to be saved, for the sick to be made well, there's three things needed. Firstly, something on God's part. Grace and mercy. If God does not receive us in grace and mercy, we will forever be in trouble. We're done before we start. And so that grace and that mercy when we put it off to the side and eliminate it from the picture, we've taken, we've taken all potential out of the picture. In fact, it's essential for us to walk in relationship with Jesus that on God's part, he exercised grace and mercy to us. Secondly, on Christ's part, it required justice. That he would take upon himself our sin. That he would take upon ourself the makings of the sinner and that he would die for those sins. That he would accomplish justice. Pay the price, the debt that was owed. For the wages of our sin is death. And Christ paid those wages. And because of what Christ did, because of his action, his works, yours are not all that important. He's already done the work. He's done what needed to be done so that you could be declared righteous. And finally, what's required on our part? But a true and a lively faith. To believe into the first thing. What's required on our part, here's the good news of this, What's required on our part actually flows out of the first two. We don't even have to come up with it. It's the result of the grace and mercy of God at work and the sufficient sacrifice of Christ for us on the cross. And so you can do, have done, will never do anything to contribute to your salvation. You are sons and daughters of the living God, and you did nothing to make that. Christ did it all. That's good news.
What is beautiful then is to come back to this lively faith and to consider. Imagine for a moment the transformative power of this gospel if even one of those Pharisees could have caught it that day. These men who look at probably one of the most beautiful moments in the history of creation, the incarnate God and creator, at intimate recline at table with men who are coming back to their intended life in God. And who because of this system they've been steeped in, this idea of works and righteousness and you've got to earn this, they're unable to see it. In, like the transformative power of the gospel put this way. Friends, I didn't come to save the righteous but the sinner. If those men could have heard that that day, they would have been immediately welcomed into the meal. It would have allowed them not only to see what was happening for others, but to experience it themselves. To see the fullness of their desire and their longing that they have toiled for, exhausted themselves unto, come to them as a gift of grace. It would have completely changed their lives. My suspicion is that it did. My guess is that, that some of those were maybe even there Pentecost Sunday. Living faith. Cramner said this. Because the thing of living faith then is we ask the question, but what about works? What does James then mean after everything we've said when he said faith though without works is dead? That there is an expression, an outworking of this that looks like righteous living. That looks like mission and kingdom participation, right? Kremner said this, For if we do not show ourselves faithful in our conversation, the faith which we pretend to have is but a feigned faith. So what he's saying is if there's no action, then our, our, this faith that we claim to have, a question. Because the true Christian faith is manifestly shown by good living. And not by words only. As St. Augustine said, good living cannot be separated from true faith, which worketh by love. And Chrysostom said, faith of itself is full of good works. As soon as a man doth believe, he shall be garnished with them. How plentiful this faith is of good works. The difference is in the ordering. We are people of good works. We are people of righteous living. But it, it's, that's not the foundation upon which you are saved. And in fact, you will never be if you keep putting that first. As a way unto. You will forever find yourselves exhausted, tired, and just totally depressed by the lack of ground you're, you're taking. But when you begin to live in and out of the mercy and grace of God over you, you will watch, that's what Chrysostom says, almost immediately you will begin to watch good things flow out of your life. Paul put it this way, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, self-control, 
Friends, this is the outworking of faith. This is what comes out of an intimate relationship with Jesus. It is never the basis upon which he chooses to love you or to grant you salvation. It's the ordering that matters, see? So consider this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. As we close off our time together, I want to invite you to consider if there's places in your own heart and your own life where you are overwhelmed with and maybe even a bit eaten up and and exhausted by sacrifice, where good works for you are sucking the life out of you, where you're trying to be better, where you're trying to, whether it be in ministry or in marriage or at work or in relationships and even ultimately in your relationship with God. What a gift spiritual disciplines are to us. But what a life sucker they can become when we turn them into the means of righteousness. See the ordering? And so to put to to let us be those who are about mercy and grace and whose lives do not apologize for our need for it, but revel in and are full of worship, the one who extends it to us unconditionally and without limit. Friends, if you're struggling in your life, the first thing you need to do is to come running to the throne of grace there to receive mercy. You will spend the rest of your life trying to get yourself clean enough to come here if that's how you think about it. Chances are, I don't know if you've ever had like a really annoying kind of moment where you did something like spill an entire bottle of barbecue sauce or, um, you know, (laughs) may or may not have happened. Yeah, you know, you know, or you're, you're you're painting the house and you dump some on the ground, you know, and then you're, and in an effort to clean it, you just keep making it worse, <laughs> because as you went to wipe, you didn't realize you had some on your elbow, and that, you know, that's like the vanity, the the vain nature of dead faith, and that's not what Jesus has invited you to. What Jesus has invited you to is to come and let him do the cleaning. He says, friends, I get it. And I want to meet you where you are. And here's the good news. If you'll take me up on that, you will not walk away the same. It will produce righteousness. It will bring about a true and lively faith. talked a couple weeks ago about evangelism on a rabbit trail right at the end, which is dangerous. But when evangelism is, is brought to us as a call of God, as something that we're called to, but we see faith, we have a dead faith, it probably won't work. But I actually would go as far as to say we're in trouble if it does. Because if, if you make it happen, then guess who's responsible for it in the end? Right? 
But if we step back and realize that this mercy and grace is at work in the world around us, and it's at work in our families' lives and our neighbors' lives and the lives of the people that we added to our prayers as Emily led us today to pray for those who have not come into this saving faith yet, then we can extend to them the same mercy and grace that set me right with Jesus. And evangelism suddenly becomes a lot of fun. It doesn't feel so heavy anymore. Friends, let's pray together. I thank you, God, that you love us with an unconditional love, with with, with an all-consuming, with a love that extends forever and always beyond our wildest dreams, beyond our comprehension. As we prepare our hearts, Lord, for worship and to come back to the table and and, and and, and to come near to you, we recognize that if our hearts and our our worldview, our idea of faith is like the Pharisees, we won't get much further than the door. Because the same notion that we think disqualifies quote-unquote sinners, in all honesty, disqualifies us too. So thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the heart of God that says to each and every one of us right now, come. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Lord, we take a moment I'll give you a moment here now to confess your sins to the Lord as we prepare to come to the table. Very particularly, if there's any repentance needed in your heart, any ways which we've been talking, you're realizing, oh, yeah, I'm still stuck. I'm still trying to work with that. Marriage, ministry, any has started to feel like a, a hamster wheel that I can't get off. I invite you to, to get off. In repentance today, to to confess and to ask the Lord to forgive you for that and to set you free to a true and lasting.